while we continue today with our series on the search for happiness. So are you happy yet? No, we've got two more sermons to go. So just hold that thought until we get to the end, and then you can decide whether you've become happier because of this sermon series. I hope it's helpful. I hope we, uh, as we explore God's Word together, uh, that it will be beneficial to all of us. Uh, last week, we looked at the idea of happiness, and we um, simply said that happiness, if we turn to the dictionary definition, is this, a pleasurable or satisfying experience. Today, I am hoping to eat Christine's broccoli rice casserole. I think it'll be a pleasurable and satisfying experience, and I will be happy. Uh, that's, that's a measure of happiness, right? I think it's legitimate to have those happy moments, those happy times when we're together, when life goes our way, when things go in our favor. But there is a danger in simply equating happiness with pleasure. Because then in the pursuit of happiness, what we end up pursuing is a collection of pleasurable experiences. And that's really hard to sustain. I don't know if you ever tried it. Because it goes kind of like this throughout our life. Uh, because those happy moments are just moments. They can be good, and I hope you have more of them, but they don't last. They're just a moment. So the quest for pleasure can actually lead us into some unhealthy paths. If I was to only eat broccoli rice casserole, I would be in trouble, right? If I always just went back and sought that pleasure over and over again, it might lead to some unhealthy paths. Uh, Robert Lustig, he's the author of The Hacking of the American Mind. I just love the title of that book. The Hacking of the Amer American Mind, he said this, our ability to perceive happiness has been sabotaged by our modern incessant quest for pleasure, which our consumer culture has made all too easy to satisfy. Those who abdicate happiness for pleasure will end up with neither. If we give up happiness for pleasure, if we, instead of pursuing true happiness, we just collect pleasurable experiences, we won't end up very happy at all. In fact, we could end up addicted or in trouble in lots of different ways. So we have to dig a little bit deeper. We have to deep, deepen the definition of happiness if we're going to understand what this pursuit is all about. And we did that last week a little bit if you had a chance to tune in. We understood that there are actually three spheres of happiness that we can be part of. The first one is this, the happiness of the moment, like I just uh, described for you. Uh, those moments in life when things go our way. When something happens, we win at Settlers of Catan, which I also hope to do today. Something like that, a moment with family, a moment, a walk in the woods, uh, a, a dinner together. Those moments of happiness can be very legitimate but they are just moments. There's another sphere of happiness, and I called it uh, the happiness in the mundane. <laughs> That's the happiness of the ordinary. That's where we spend most of our lives, actually, is just in mundane things, in work and in chores and in family and in chores and in reading and in chores. <laughs> you understand how it works, right? Uh, we're always taking the garbage out. We're always cleaning the kitchen. I'm going to attempt today to find happiness in cleaning the kitchen. But there is a kind of happiness in the mundane, a happiness that comes from a sense of satisfaction or fulfillment in doing the ordinary things of life. And I think we have to recognize that kind of happiness too. 
But I want to push it one step further to one more sphere of potential happiness. And that is happiness in misery. Is that possible? Is it possible to experience joy even when things aren't going our way? Is it possible to experience uh, the goodness and the grace of God and be happy about it even when things are terrible in life? I suggest, and I think Jesus suggests, (laughs) that it is possible. And that's part of what we're pursuing today. In the pursuit of happiness, we want to understand what does it look like to still have joy even when circumstances are not favorable toward us. Happiness, even in misery, to be able to say, like the Apostle Paul, the joy of the Lord is my strength. That's the kind of joy that we're looking for. Well, last week we looked at the very first secret. The first secret of a happy life is what? Anybody remember? Pursue love. I think I heard it. It's masked. It's hard to hear. But pursue love. Instead of pursuing happiness, uh, pursue love. Being loved, receiving love, giving love. As we pursue love, happiness follows. And that's a really important lesson for us to learn. And we see that again at the beginning of Ephesians. In chapter 5, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to it, and uh, the passage was read for us by Carolyn. Ephesians chapter 5, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You get, get the message? <laughs> Paul is saying, love, put love first. Put love first and happiness will follow. Well, what's the second key or the second secret to a happy life? I would suggest that the second key is gratitude. The second key to a happy life is gratitude. See, in the first instance with love, the, the first enemy of happiness is hatred. It is impossible, I think, to hate and to be happy at the same time. And sometimes we think we can because hatred sneaks up on us, doesn't it? Hatred starts with that feeling of injustice. I've been wronged somehow and I have a right to feel wronged. And then that wrong, that injustice isn't resolved. And so we we begin to become bitter. And then in our bitterness, we start to quest for revenge. We think it's justice, but it's actually revenge. And then when our revenge isn't uh, worn out or, or doesn't play out as the way we want it, then we can end up hating. And when we get to that level of hate, there's no room for happiness. We think we're injuring the other person, don't we? When we don't forgive them, when we hate them, when we're angry at them. But they've probably forgotten all about it. Maybe they've moved on. And all we're doing is injuring ourselves. And so hatred is the enemy of happiness. And that's why we need love. Love is the only weapon that will conquer hatred. That's why it's so important. But here's the second uh, key to happiness is gratitude because the second enemy of happiness is greed. The second enemy of happiness is greed. Just a little more, right? How much is enough? Just a little more. When we sit at the Thanksgiving table, some of us today, and we'll think, how much is enough on our plate? I'll say, just a little more. And then I'll end up very unhappy after the meal. I have to be careful. Christine's going to help me today. So we say that because greed is an enemy of happiness. We cannot be greedy 
chasing just a little more all the time, and be happy. And the Bible makes that very uh, clear to us. It's interesting because it seems like all of society is meant to make us unhappy. At least we see that through commercials and advertising, right? We realize that when we watch advertising on YouTube or on cable news or wherever it is, the goal of advertising is to make you feel unhappy with your life. I remember sitting on the couch one time when the girls were small and we were watching a show that we couldn't fast forward and couldn't skip the commercials and this commercial came on. It was a completely ridiculous commercial. It was, it was for a cat scratcher. And it was like one of those infomercials that just lasted way too long, but we were captive audience. And so this cat scratcher was the most amazing cat scratcher that was ever made, apparently. And they went on about it for like three minutes. And at the end, when the commercial was finally over, to my surprise, one of the girls said, we need that. And I said, honey, we don't even have a cat. But that's what commercials do, don't they? They create a sense of false need. They, they create a sense of your life isn't complete unless you have this, unless you have just a little bit more. If you only had that cat scratcher, <laughs> your life would be complete. And that's a lie. And that's a lie that we have to reject over and over and over again. Um, Commercials are meant to make us unhappy with what, the, what we have. And greed is the enemy of happiness. Greed says, I must have more. Gratitude counters with, I have more than enough. Greed says, my life is pathetic. Gratitude says, my life is so blessed. Greed says, greed steals our joy, but gratitude restores our happiness. Gratitude is the antidote to greed. Well, of all the writers in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul is the one who gives thanks the most. I don't know if you've ever realized that. And again, I'm, we're focusing on Paul because I think Paul gets a bit of a bad rap sometimes. Paul is very direct. He's very blunt. He's very abrupt sometimes in his writings. Some of his writings are hard to understand. But Paul is not only an apostle of love, He's also the, the apostle of thanksgiving. If you go through Paul's letters, you'll see it over and over and over again. I give thanks. I give thanks. We give thanks. That's the heart of what Paul is doing. In fact, the theme of gratitude in Paul comes up at least 49 times. I tried counting them this week. I might have missed a few. You can go home. That can be your afternoon task. Or read the number of times that Paul mentions giving thanks or saying thanks or gratitude or some related word. I got to 49 times throughout the New Testament in all his writings. It's a major theme. But for Paul, giving thanks is not just about being polite. We realize that. Our, our mothers and would say to us when they sent us out, remember your pleas and thank yous. That's important. We need to teach our kids that. But for Paul, it wasn't just about manners. It's not just about being polite in public. Paul drives it much deeper than that. For Paul, giving thanks, gratitude, is essential to our witness and to our worship. As we look at that passage in Ephesians, uh, Paul lays out a kind of moral standard for the church. 
Yes, there is a moral standard for the church. There is actually an expectation of how we behave with one another and how we interact with the world around us. And Paul lays that out here, all different kinds of things. And Paul says in the middle of that, that one of the marks of the church is gratitude, thanksgiving. In this middle of this moral standard, the measure of Christian community is first love, and second, it's gratitude. Have a look at verse 3. Paul says this, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Do you hear that? Greed is improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. We have a choice with what to do with our words, don't we? We can use our words to harm. We can use our words to be coarse. We can use our words to gossip, to, to express bitterness and anger. Or, Paul says, the appropriate use of our words is what? Thanksgiving. Giving thanks. That's the mark of the Christian community. The very end of that chapter, uh, Paul turns to worship. And he says this, Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the heart of worship is thanksgiving, giving thanks, gratitude. So at, at the heart of our witness in the world, we need to be a community of gratitude. And in the heart of our worship life together, we need to express gratitude to God. William Barclay says this, the early church was a thankful church. The instinct was to give thanks for all things and in all places and at all times. The early church was a thankful church because its members, and listen to this, I love it. His members were still dazzled with the wonder that God's love had stooped to save them. And it was a thankful church because its members had such a consciousness that they were in the hands of God. They knew that God had stooped to save them, and they knew that they were safe in the hands of God, and therefore they were a thankful church. But Paul pushes it even more. Uh, thanksgiving is so important to Paul. It's not just being polite. It's not just the hallmark of the healthy congregation. Uh, the opposite of thanksgiving, ingratitude, unthankfulness, was actually a sign of apostasy. Those who were walking away from faith, walking away from God, one of the first signs was ingratitude. And he says that in Romans chapter one. He says, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the mark of apostasy, not being thankful. That's how serious Paul takes gratitude. But he pushes it even further, just to make it even more important. He says that ingratitude, unthankfulness, is actually a sign of the end times. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and unholy. Can you imagine that? Paul puts blasphemy and unthankfulness on the same level. That's how important it was to Paul. So thanksgiving and gratitude is at the very core, not only of our worship and our witness, but should be at the very core of our faith and our being. 
and should be at the very core and heart of all humanity. That's Thanksgiving. It's essential to discipleship, to witness, to worship, to the Christian community, and to our lives in the world. That's the power of gratitude. Well, how did Paul cultivate this attitude of gratitude? I've been waiting all year just to say that phrase, attitude of gratitude, because I know it sounds fun, and it is. And so how did Paul cultivate this attitude of gratitude? Number one, he made gratitude a priority. In Romans chapter one, Paul is about to lay out some very deep, tricky theological truths to the church in Rome. I mean, if you've ever read Romans, it's a hard read at times, and there's a lot of stuff in there. But before he gets to that, he says this in Romans chapter one. First, very intentionally, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. First, the word there I think is uh, proton or protos, and its meaning is of highest priority or first in time and space of highest priority, before I get uh, to the gospel, before I get to explaining the ways of God in the world, first, I want to say thanks. I thank God every day for you. That's my priority. Paul made gratitude a priority. So that's my question. That's my first challenge this morning. Is gratitude a priority for us? Or is our priority to complain or to criticize or to gossip or to bicker, or to argue, or to tear down. Uh, Because if we're doing those other things first, we're not going to be very happy. That's just the reality of it. But Paul says, first, I give thanks. If gratitude is a priority, then happiness is sure to follow. The second thing that Paul did is he made gratitude known. He expressed his gratitude to others. He says in 1 Corinthians, in fact, Paul does this with the Romans. He does it with the Thessalonians, with the Ephesians, with the Colossians. He does it uh, with Timothy. He even says thanks to God for the Corinthians. And I think the Corinthians were often a pain in the apostle uh, for poor, poor old Paul as he wrestled with what to do with the church in Corinth. But he even says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. He lets his gratitude be known. Isn't that so interesting? Uh, Sometimes we feel grateful. Someone has given us something and we feel that's that's nice. We're, We're grateful for it. But do we actually take time to express it to the other person? I think that's part of the secret of happiness, of shared happiness. And Paul does it over and over, over again, consistently. He says, I thank God for you. Have you done that lately Uh, for your spouse? Have you turned and said, Christine, I thank God for you. There, I checked off my list, so I'm good. It's up to you now. Or to your children, or to your coworkers, or to your neighbor, or back to God. I'm so thankful for you to not only feel gratitude, but to actually express it, to make gratitude known to others that we are grateful for them for who they are and for what they do. We need to let others know. Part of the secret of happiness is expressing our gratitude. 
So Paul made gratitude a priority. He made gratitude known. And then wait for it. Number three, and I'm sure there's other points that you could come up with, but I'm a Baptist. I'm restricted to three points. And the third one is this. He made gratitude ubiquitous. I've also been waiting a long time to use that word uh, because it makes me sound smart. But it's a great word, ubiquitous. It kind of means appearing or found everywhere. Paul found reasons for gratitude everywhere at all times and in all circumstances. That is the secret to a happy life. He found gratitude everywhere. In Ephesians chapter 5 and 20 that we read together, he says, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. See that double? Always for everything. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Sometimes people come to me and say, I just don't know what God's will is for my life. I just wonder, you know, should I buy this car or that car? Should, should I marry this person or that person? That hasn't happened too often. But they wonder, what is God's will for my life? And sometimes I feel like saying, it's clear. It's clear in scripture. Here's one of them. God's will for you is to give thanks in all circumstances. Do that first and the other things will follow. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's God's will for you and me. How do we do that? How do we possibly give thanks in all circumstances at all times? Well, here's the secret. Secret is this. For Paul, gratitude is a response to God's grace. It's really important that we get this. Gratitude is actually not a response to the circumstances around him. Gratitude is a response to God's grace. Second Corinthians chapter four, Paul says, all this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause gratitude to overflow to the glory of God. I love that. I love that progression in that verse. Grace, which leads to gratitude, which leads to glory. That's the progression that we need to also see in our lives. In fact, as we break that verse down, we recognize in the original language in Greek that the word grace and the word for gratitude, they're actually related. They actually share the same root. Charis is the word for grace. And eucharisto is the word for thanksgiving or gratitude. I give thanks. Charis is the foundation. God's grace is the foundation of our thanksgiving. John Piper says this. In other words, gratitude flourishes in the sphere of grace. Grace is charis and gratitude is eucharisteo because gratitude is a response to grace. Gratitude is the feeling of happiness you feel towards somebody who has shown you some undeserved kindness. That is, someone who has been gracious to you. In every circumstances, in every circumstance, if we look, if we listen, we can see and hear God's grace at work. God is gracious all the time. And if we tune into the grace of God, we'll find reasons to express gratitude to the glory of God. That's the secret to the happy life. That's the secret to gratitude is resting in God's grace. Well, G.K. Chesterton said this, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought 
and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. So here's the bottom line. Don't search after just a little more in life. Don't settle for that. Fight against it every single day. And the way you fight against it is by giving thanks. Gratitude is the antidote to greed. So we are called to pursue love and to practice gratitude and happiness will follow. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today that your grace is enough. That even in adverse circumstances, your disciple, your apostle Paul, was able to say that your grace was sufficient for him, no matter what he faced. And so as we rest and we reflect on your grace today, we want to say thank you. Open our eyes to see your goodness. Open our ears to hear your grace. And open our lips to respond with gratitude because you are worthy in Jesus' name. Amen.